So depending on what kind of church you go to, or maybe you don't go to church anymore, but you used to, you've probably heard of Lent, and you might be familiar with the idea of giving something up for Lent. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce. This is A Bigger Story. I'm recording on March 15th, which is the Ides of March. So I have to play this song. This is from the rock band Ides of March, fronted by Jim Peterick. The song is Vehicle from 1970. They're from Berwyn, Illinois, about four miles from Maywood, which was the original location of my seminary. And uh, John Prime is from Maywood, Illinois. And I think, I have to check, I think his postal route was actually in Berwyn. And Berwyn is where I served the chaplaincy at McNeil Hospital in Berwyn way back in like 1995. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lifetime ago. So Lent is the 40 days prior to Easter Sunday, beginning on Ash Wednesday. So I'm going to geek out for a minute. If you look at your calendar, you would notice that Ash Wednesday this year, 2023, was on February 22nd. And if you took the time to count from Ash Wednesday on February 22nd to Easter Sunday, which is, was that like April 10th? Whatever day that is. I'm like, hold on. I'm going to pull up my calendar. It's loading. April, Easter Sunday is April 9th. So if you were to look at the calendar beginning Ash Wednesday, February 22nd, to Easter Sunday, April 9th, it wouldn't be 40 days. It would be 53. So how is Lent the 40 days prior to Easter? And Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, and Easter's April 9th, so it's 53 days. Well, here's how that works. We don't include the Sundays in counting the 40 days prior to Easter, because as Martin Luther once said, every Sunday is a little Easter, so they're not included in this kind of penitential season of Lent in the liturgical church calendar. And so if you count from Ash Wednesday through Palm Sunday, April 2nd, it actually works out to 40 days, as long as you don't count Saturday, April 8th, the Saturday right before Easter Sunday. And why do you not count that one? Because That Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that some call Holy Saturday. It's not an official name. Others call it the Great Pause, the days between Good Friday and Easter together. That Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are considered like one big thing called the Triduum, the three days, all as a way to geek out and say the 40 days of Lent prior to Easter don't include the Sundays, and don't include the Holy Saturday right before Easter Sunday. And just to geek out a little more, Lent comes from the Old English Lenten, L-E-N-C-T-E-N, which means spring season. Also, the Old High German Lens, L-E-N-Z, also means spring season. Christians were really good at appropriating pre-existing, pre-Christian cultural observances as a marketing move. It's been done from the beginning. So Lent, the 40 days, not including the Sundays. When I was a kid growing up at St. John's Episcopal Church in New York, we were given these uh, Lent folders, calendars, that had slots 
for, I think it was nickels or dimes or quarters. It probably went from nickels, dimes, and quarters because of inflation over time. But we got these really cool calendars with that we could put like quarters in these little pocket slots on these Lent calendars for 40 days um, as a way of practicing, like giving something up for Lent, this self-sacrifice. Of course, we weren't self-sacrificing because we'd just go to mom or grandma, grandpa uh, for the quarter. But anyway, um, it was to help us develop this habit of giving something up for Lent. And adults do that to this day. I know people who, uh, whether they're church participants or not, um, Lent comes along, especially somebody who's got like some Catholic memory, um, even if they're not a practicing Catholic, will give stuff up for Lent. Alcohol, cigarettes, candy. I've always thought and I've always taught as a pastor that the thing that we decide to give up for Lent, often we give it up because we think it would be good for us to give it up. And that rather than just do it for the 40 days, if we get into the practice of giving a certain thing up because we think it would be good to do, maybe we should hold that habit and continue after Lent. And then I kind of shifted, and for several years, um, including like I think even last year, I would advocate not so much giving something up for Lent, but taking on something for Lent, like volunteering in a soup kitchen, a food pantry, a homeless shelter. Because taking that on requires us to give something up, our time. And maybe doing it that way would really kind of be less self-oriented and expand our scope a little bit to give up time as a byproduct of taking something on that could help other people. Kind of cool, right? So I've been listening to this podcast a lot uh, for several years. It's called Homebrewed Christianity. It is a much deeper dive than this podcast. It's really designed for theology nerds like me. The podcasts go on for an hour or more. Beer is usually involved. I'll link to Homebrewed Christianity in my show notes. So I was listening to this one specific episode, and I'll, I'll link to the specific episode too, where the host, Trip Fuller, who has a PhD in philosophy, religion, and theology, and I think up until recently he was teaching at Edinburgh in Scotland, which I thought was really cool. So Trip Fuller, the host of Homebrewed Christianity, is interviewing another theologian named Philip Clayton, who is the Ingram Chair, which is like, you know, of a professorship. He's a professor at Claremont School of Theology, where he directs the PhD program in comparative theologies and philosophies. So these two philosopher theologians, PhDs, are talking about this notion of giving something up. They weren't talking about it really in the context of Lent, but they were talking about it in the context of this passage uh, from the New Testament, Christian scriptures, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and starting around verse 5, it says this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. 
That'd be a good message for a lot of Christians, right? Not to exploit their Christianity. But anyway, he, to continue from Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross which happens, the focus of this happens to be the theme of Lent. And Tripp and Philip, Tripp Fuller and Philip Clayton, these two theologians, were focused and zeroed in on this one part of that. He emptied himself, emptied himself. The Greek word for which, for emptying, is kenosis. And this notion of kenosis has become an important theological term for some Christians, yours truly included. It's about that self-emptying, that self-giving, surrendering of self. It's the idea behind this whole Lent thing of giving something up, self-giving. So Tripp is talking about this notion of kenosis, of self-giving, self-emptying with Philip Clayton. And Philip Clayton says, hold the phone, wait just a minute. It's not just about self-giving. It's not just about self-emptying. He said that's only half of kenosis. He said the other half is we give of ourselves and also make space to receive of self. Giving of self is only one half, he said. The other half of this idea of kenosis is that we make space through our self-giving to receive. We give of ourselves to make space to receive. And that's the whole point of this podcast, by the way. That's, that's the central point right there. We give of ourselves to make space to receive. Because if our self-giving doesn't make space for also receiving, it can become an exercise in like self-flagellation, and we could miss the point. Philip Clayton gave an example that I thought was really awesome. He said that when that self-giving and self-receiving together, the both sides of this coin, it's like apologizing to a spouse, a life partner, but apologizing in a way where it's not about who's wrong or right. I mean, sometimes it is, and it's just at that kind of basic level. But Philip Clayton was advocating this notion of apologizing to a spouse, a life partner on this bigger scale where my apology to my spouse is a self-giving in order to receive something. And that something in this example being a deeper understanding of my spouse's perspective, receiving a deeper trust from my spouse, a trust that my spouse understands and trusts that my approach to our relationship isn't contained in this reductionist little binary battle over who's wrong or right, but is bigger. That my self-giving in the form of an apology is also open to a self-receiving, seeking a deeper mutual understanding between the two of us. And then it becomes about also grace, about this love that's unconditional, no strings attached, guaranteed. So self-giving is one half, 
self-receiving is the other half. Another basic example would be breathing. We exhale. That's kind of think of that as self-giving. You exhale. If you were giving someone mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, the exhale would be the self-giving. And then we exhale so that we can then inhale. If we only did one or the other, we'd die. So we exhale the self-giving so that we can inhale the self-receiving. Over the last several months, I've had a lot of, I've had to have a lot of chest and back x-rays. And when I'm standing where they want me in the x-ray room, they tell me to breathe in and then breathe out and then to hold it. But you can't stay in that state. You can't stay in the state of just inhaling or exhaling. So it's this interplay between self-giving and self-receiving. In the Genesis creation stories in the Hebrew scriptures, God creates everything by self-giving, literally by exhaling, by breathing out God's spirit to animate all of creation. God breathes into the first humans to animate them, to bring them to life. Richard Rohr, the amazing Franciscan priest, says that even the written Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which when it is pronounced, gets pronounced Yahweh, Richard Rohr offers the possibility that Yahweh is an onomatopoeic word, that it literally represents the breathing, the inhale, the exhaling, and the inhaling of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. It sounds like a breathing rhythm. It sounds like a heart rhythm, Yahweh, Yahweh. And when Richard Rohr taught me that, I would spend whole hours just walking through these parks in Jacksonville, Florida, especially during COVID, during the lockdown, the isolation, and just doing that, breathing rhythm to Yahweh, Yahweh. So cool. So if you're observing Lent or contemplating your way in some way through Lent, even if not a churchgoer, but just because Lent exists somewhere in your memory data bank and you're thinking it might be somehow useful, I think it can help us to keep Philip Clayton's both halves of this idea of kenosis in view. Self-giving, but also self-receiving. And to know both halves of it is important because if we just do the self-giving part, we can kind of pump ourselves up, get into this kind of virtue signaling. This is what I'm giving of myself. And even if even if it's just sort of like subliminal in our minds and in our hearts, when it's in our minds and in our hearts, even like on a subconscious level, it leaks out. And the person that might be on the other end of our self-giving will sense it. So we have to do also the receiving part. 
And I want to conclude with two possible reasons also why the receiving part, two additional possible reasons why the receiving part is so important. First, let's say that you or I decide to self-give by taking something on, volunteering in a homeless shelter or a food pantry, giving of our time, which is a big thing. Time is a precious commodity. My spouse commutes from our home in suburban Chicago into the city of Chicago. That's typically at least one and a half hours each way. And she works really, really hard. And when she's home, often she's working. On the weekends, often she's working. So if she were to choose to volunteer in a homeless shelter or food pantry, she'd be giving of her time. That would be a big give on her part. And she has done those things. If we don't approach the giving of ourselves in the spiritual posture of also expecting that we will receive something every bit as much or more as we are giving, then that attitude that we're giving more than we're receiving, it will seep out. And also we'll miss something really important. And here's how that looks, I think, in a Christian spiritual frame. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the 25th chapter, those who Jesus describes as righteous, not self-righteous, but legitimately righteous, good people, will ask Jesus, Lord, when was it? Because Jesus is commending them for doing some things, uh, feeding the hungry, and they are puzzled. They're so good that they don't even know that they're doing good. So they say, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And Jesus answers, and he's telling this kind of in the form of a parable. So the actual words are, and the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Jesus is saying in that moment that when we are with a stranger, a hungry person, a person without the resources to even to buy clothes, that we're with him. And when we serve such a one, that we are serving literally him. It's called incarnation. Incarnation, the etymology of that word literally means in the flesh. And theologically, those of us who lead or have led uh, spiritual communities, we try to teach and model for those communities that we lead this incarnational approach. And so often we do just the first half and teach that we're supposed to incarnate Jesus to others, be Jesus in the flesh for others. And we forget to do the second half. We do the self-giving, but we forget to do the self-receiving. 
We forget the reverse incarnation, which is every bit as important so that we don't become self-important. The other side of incarnation is that every time we attempt to be incarnate Jesus for another, especially the poor, the hungry, the demonized, that they are every bit or more Jesus back to us. And if we go into the world expecting that reality, that we will receive the presence of Jesus from another, even as we think we might be bringing the presence of Jesus to another, that we will receive something of immeasurable worth and it will change us and it will help us to know more deeply our truest selves as human beings in relationship to and with others. We receive our truest selves as part of something bigger, realizing that we're part of something bigger and more beautiful and mysterious than ourselves in our own little world. We find ourselves becoming part of something bigger. And that approach to the 40 days of Lent would make the 40 days of Lent, I think, really awesome for anybody. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast player you you use, if it allows you to, please scroll down and find where you can rate and review the podcast. It helps move it forward and make it more discoverable for others. It kind of moves it up the charts. So thanks in advance if you don't mind doing that. And stay in touch. For now, the email is pastorbrucecole at gmail.com. This is season two, and we're calling season two of A Bigger Story the Sum Pump Sessions because in my basement where I'm recording, the sum pump ejects very regularly. But by some miracle, it doesn't eject when I'm recording so far in these first three episodes. So maybe I'll try to make it eject somehow next time because, you know, we're calling it the sum pump sessions. I want you to hear it. Pastor Bruce Cole at gmail.com. Stay in touch. Remember you are loved.